You're listening to the Felony Inc. podcast on the Startup Radio Network. In America, we live in a society that houses the largest inmate population on earth. And the current cost of mass incarceration via the prison industrial complex is incalculable. So anything that can be done to help curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable. That's what we attempt to do, one show at a time and one guest at a time. Each week, we interview felons and non-felons attempting to make the world a better place for those currently incarcerated, families, and communities affected by the big business of prison. Felony Inc. Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All right, welcome to another riveting, exciting edition of Felony Inc. Podcast. I'm your host today. My name is DJ Dick Hennessy. As always, joined by my number one co-host, Meg Thibodeau. Meg, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Dick. It's always nice to see you in the Zoom room. Yes, it Our is. little post-COVID podcast protocol is working out pretty good. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> um, speaking of working out pretty good, man, we have a hell of a guest today. Um, of course, I'm talking about none other than James Montero, founder, director, of Reentry Campus Program, the website's reentrycampusprogram.org. And let me just tell you a little bit about the Reentry Campus Program. Uh, the mission of the Reentry Campus Program is to reduce recidivism rates by providing access to an affordable pathway to post secondary education for returning citizens. Founded by formerly incarcerated citizens for presently incarcerated citizens. Um, James, how are you doing today? Great. Thank you for having me. Uh, honored to be on your show. Man, honored to have you on the show. So typically, James, how we begin the podcast, being is that you're a first-time guest, uh, you kind of we kind of ask a little bit about your maybe your upbringing, uh, what kind of mm-hmm. led you on the path that you're on now, and um, you know, uh, feel free to elaborate on that as you feel like. Okay. Uh, I guess for me, uh, I was a middle school dropout. Um, I dropped out of school in the eighth grade, um, ended up moving out of my mother's house, moved in with a older woman, um, 10 years my senior and was exposed to things that pretty much no 15 year old boy should be exposed to at that time. Um, Fast forward three years later, I ended up spending, as a result of that decision I made as an adolescent, I ended up spending the next 20 years of my life um, incarcerated up and down the East Coast. Um, First time I was incarcerated, I was like, I want nothing to do with this. I was pretty much done. But uh, upon release, I had little to nothing to stand on except the eighth grade education. Uh, I was able to get a dishwashing job. I might have got lucky to get a... uh, a warehouse job and uh, I was a little bit older um, I couldn't even afford to take care of myself never mind my want for a family um, always compensated tried to compensate my income and ended up going right back to prison um, the last time I was incarcerated was in Baltimore Maryland tried to geographic cure and it's crazy because everybody in Baltimore was like what are you doing out here? You came to Baltimore to get out of trouble? I was like, yeah, I did. <laughs> but uh, fast forward, man, and, and I was incarcerated in Baltimore, and my, my thinking, it just I kind of changed. It was like, 
I was more concerned with like, what am I going to do to stay out of prison instead of just get out of prison? So everything that I did while I was incarcerated was geared and centered towards, okay, you just caught 10 years. What are you going to do with this next 10 years to make sure you don't ever come back to this place again? And you're as prepared as possible to get out there and make it in society. Um, so it was finish school, write a book, and just, I set some goals. Um, I wanted to get out with a bachelor's degree, to be honest with you, that was one of the goals I had. I figured 10 years was more than enough time to do it. <laughs> but uh, got my GED, um, and it's crazy the way I got my associate's degree. They didn't have any college programs inside the prison, so what I did was I registered as if I wasn't incarcerated, it was an online school, and they would send everything up to me by mail and uh, I'd do my assignments mail and back. But when I had to log stuff in on the computer, I would call my girlfriend up collect and I would tell her to log in. She would log in and I'd tell her the answer to number one is B. And she'd be on the other end of the phone logging all my answers in. Um, midterms and finals, I just ran down to the GD professor. I was like, dude, please, can you just proctor my exams for me? And he sent me off in a room by myself. And that's how I took my midterms and finals. And I ended up getting my bachelor's in like a year and a half. I mean, two, not my associates in two and a half years. The thing about it was I still had like three years left on my sentence. So I was like, damn, I wish I could go further. So I started doing my research and I was like, all right, what's the cost for bachelor's degree program? Because all of this was being paid out of my $3 a day job, my Dom, my brother, Dom, you got a few dollars. I, I was just hustling to pay for these courses. But the cost from associates to bachelors, it jumped significantly. And it was just like totally out of reach for me. So I just ended up sitting around for the next two and a half, three years waiting to be released to go further. Um, I was fortunate. I was reintroduced to a childhood friend. He was running the whole financial aid department at the community college of Rhode Island here. He helped me to get back into school and I went back to school full-time. I worked full-time and part-time and I finished with my bachelor's in a year and a half. And my, my only thing was like, when I, when I graduated, I was like, he, the guy that helped me to get so I was like, yo, I got a ticket for you. Cause I had like five tickets, but I want to make sure he had one for my graduation. He's like, I can't make it. And I said, yo man, what do I owe you? He said, you don't really owe me anything. Just make sure you pass that on. Um, and I mean, there's a few other things that happen along the way, but that is where the reentry campus came from. Um, he mentored me. He helped me. Without him, I don't know where I would be today. Uh, I would, be, would have been completely lost. Um, and because of it, I have what I like to call choices. My thing was more education, more money, more freedom, and not necessarily physical freedom, but freedom of choices. I have more choices today than I had when I was released with nothing but an eighth grade education. Um, and I always like to say it's one thing to be locked up in prison, but it's entirely another thing to be locked out of society. And I know what it feels like to be locked out of society. So we just try to provide that opportunity for those that are coming after us. Sorry, kind of long winded. Oh man, you could take all the time in the world to explain that, man. That's, you know, it's, it's one thing, it's just so incredibly ambitious what you're able to accomplish in there. Like, did you have someone you looked up to? Like, was there someone doing someone something similar to that? 
because I never heard anyone actually kind of being like, oh, okay, I'll do it. And then getting everything mailed into, you know, prison or whatever. And then having That's amazing to yeah, me. <laughs> doing the tests, you know, the third party outside. Figuring out how to coordinate all that is really phenomenal. Cause I mean, it's, it's a bummer. There's not more opportunity to do college while you're in prison for you to have to jump through all those hoops. That's mm. really impressive. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. That's kind of. That's I was kind in of, Maryland. And I saw an article about a guy named Andreas Edaraga, uh, who was incarcerated in Rhode Island, um, and it stood out to me because I'm like all the way in Baltimore. I'm like anything from Rhode Island stands out to me. And uh, he had been incarcerated. He got out. He went to Brown. He got his undergrad from Brown. Then he went to Yale and got his law degree from Yale. And I was just amazed by that. So it was that was one of the other things that kind of motivated me and I, I look up to Andreas to this day he mentors me he's on my advisory board really great guy so. and you know the, the most important thing I think is about the story is you know when you dropped out of school in eighth grade and then ended up doing you know 20 years in prison it could have been so easy for you to just be like all right that's you know that's it that's my future that's my life you know and uh, you went the exact opposite direction and that's you know incredibly just impactful to me and you know for anyone listening mm -hmm. i think that it should be a good just a message that you know no matter how bad things look you can always turn things around you know at some point um you know one thing that i'm wondering about is so you get out finally you have this degree in psychology you major in psychology correct mm -hmm. um how do you begin the progress you said you had a friend and you were working to create the reentry campus program is this something you wanted to do like for a while or is this something that kind of came up after you got out? It came up. It's just uh, Steve Jobs said it best. He said, you can't connect the dots going forward. You just can't do it. Um, you can only connect them by looking backwards. So you have to trust in something, karma, your gut, destiny, something. And as long as you're going in the right direction, you have to trust that you'll end up right where you're supposed to be. My goal was, I just wanted to, my whole goal was just to get a decent job, like, which to me was 15 bucks an hour, meet a good woman and make it, and that would be a goal. That was my equation for success. 15 bucks an hour and a good woman, both of us working together, I could make it happen. And uh, it's just one thing led, led to another. Um, just a series of things kind of led me in this direction. Uh, uh, I could tell you a few, but- Tell us. Yeah. Yes. 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 <laughs> um, Please. One was definitely seeing my childhood friend, Barry. Um, he was running the whole uh, financial aid department at CCRI, suit and tie, making really good money. And we went to school together. Like we were in, uh, we went to Holy Name Catholic school. We played basketball. He was the forward. I was the point guard. He was the more like power guy down in the hole. We would go down Bay Street, hang out and, we always ended up in a problem because of Barry. He was the one that always started the trouble. And I knew his, his, his background, I knew his history. So when he was helping me with my financial aid, I was just looking at him like, and my only question to him was like, how the heck did you do that, man? And he's, he's looking at me, he's leaning back, he's like, what do you mean? I said, how did you turn like our life circumstances around like that. He said, James, the more letters I got behind my name, the less my background mattered. So that's one of the things that kind of pushed me in this direction. Um, the other thing is I did, uh, 
I spoke at a conference one day, um, the Lumina Foundation for the Lumina Foundation. And after the conference, a uh, lady ran up to me, um, which I later found out was the vice president of Lumina. And she asked me to start doing this work. Um, she wanted to steal me away from the employer that I was working for. And I declined because um, I just was loyal to my employer. But it also kind of set the wheels in motion. And then there was a, a fellowship application that I had filled out for an organization called Equin Green. And sorry, that's my phone. Equin Green and just being around like-minded people, starting innovative um, social enterprises kind of gave me the tools and stuff that I needed in order to build and go down this path with this organization. Yeah. So tell thing. us about the organization. Tell everyone listening what you're doing there so everybody has a clear picture of what's happening. Uh, my goal is to help currently inform the incarcerated people finish the post-secondary education that they started behind prison walls once they release. Um, we have approximately 90,000 individuals uh, nationwide. Taking, Did you say 90,000? 90,000 90, okay. uh, taking college courses behind the walls of prison. Um, and that's at the associate and certificate level. That number drops significantly when you're talking about bachelor's degree, right? And then it almost disappears when people are released. Like nobody's tracking it. It's like we have all these people starting school behind walls. Like I, I, I get it, I don't wanna get in trouble anymore. Um, what's my best option? go back to school. Okay, I go back to school, but I can only go this far. And nobody's tracking it. And um, I get it because that was my experience. I got my social degree. If I would have been able to continue on, I would have came out with at very least a bachelor's degree. I would have went straight into a master's program upon release. Um, but uh, yeah, we just try to help people. We try to help those people finish. That's our goal. And what's that process? So somebody comes to you, they get out, how do they find you? And they come to you, and then what happens next? We haven't recruited too much for our program, I'll be honest with you. Most of it is just word of mouth. I'm getting, I get mail daily. Oh, sorry. I get mail daily um, in regards to people asking to join this program. Um, and then from there, uh, we get acceptance. Uh, you have to write an essay. Um, they have to have at least a GB or high school diploma. Um, and from there, we work with them inside. Uh, we offer um, prior learning assessment, Dante's courses. Uh, we pay for the classes. We provide all the study material. I'm an approved proctor, I proctor exams. Um, and then we help with the transitional support. So when somebody's getting ready to get released, we're helping them with financial aid. We're helping them advisement. We're doing degree audits for them. So you know exactly like where you're at, what courses you need to go further. And then we're partnered with four other organizations, which are Amos Health, the Center for Prison and Health and Human Rights, um, the Nonviolence Institute and Open Doors um, that help with like housing, help with um, mental health, help with uh, um, um, uh, health related stuff. It's just, we kind of make sure that people are stable in those areas so they're able to focus on their studies. Um, and we That's so important. There's partners. so many people in prison um, and out of prison, of course, that if 
if generationally getting degrees is not part of their story, the process even of applying and getting started and going through financial aid is so many levels of resistance. And that can increase exponentially for folks that have been incarcerated. So this is a really incredible service. Yes, it's difficult for teenagers coming out of straight out of high school or for parents of teenagers <laughs> coming straight out of high school trying to help their teenager. I mean, we have a whole college advisement um, team inside high schools and in college. Um, I think some of these individuals, especially that have been away from academic settings for years on end, need this type of uh, setup and support also. Right. And folks that have been away from an at like, like yourself that mm -hmm. stopped doing academics at such a young age that it becomes yeah. so it becomes almost foreign. Yeah. yeah. This is powerful work. Yeah. For real. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, so I saw you was quoting that 67% of people who came out of prison want more education, but only like 23% are able to actually do so. Yeah. Um, essentially, why do you think that is? It's uh, it's not a lack in desire. Like people want to go back to school. It's just lacking a pathway. Few resources. I think it was in '95 or '96. Um, our government decided to take Pell grants outside of the prison, um, which caused a mass exodus of college programs from our prison uh, systems. So right now, there's just a lack of a pathway designed specifically for this population. Um, I mean, that in, in and of itself, numbers don't lie. 67% want to go back to school, 27% uh, only are, are able to, and this is attributing to high recidivism rates, in, in, in my opinion. Homelessness, it's, it, um, the overwhelming need for people on um, social service programs, we have, like in Rhode Island, uh, our governor has a very ambitious goal of having 75% um, of Rhode Islanders, 75% of Rhode Islanders with a post-secondary credential or, or degree by 2025. She knows what type of employment opportunities she's bringing to the state. Um, we have a situation where as though we are the second uh, in regards to manufacturing jobs, um, we've lost more than probably any other state in the country. All of our factor, all of our factories and, and mills are turning into condos now. Um, so we have a huge uh, uh, um, skills gap in Rhode Island, especially in minority and impoverished populations, which is causing the people that come home, they're just not prepared for the employment opportunities that are in the state that they live in. Um, so we just need to do a better job with preparing them. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, you had won the Rhode Island NAACP Joseph LeCount Award yeah. for uh, founding the Billy Taylor House. Uh, can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Billy Taylor? Yeah, what is Billy Taylor? Billy Taylor is a program I started. It provides workforce development and enrichment opportunities for youth age 15 through 21 in my childhood neighborhood. We basically run for-profit businesses and we funnel it back into nonprofit structure. We don't actually run the business because it's just too much. So we rented it out and the rents from the business, like we have a building that has a cafe in it, pay for the summer jobs program for these kids. Um, the program is named after a childhood uh, friend of ours, which was Billy Taylor. He was somebody that was like all of us, we didn't have, I was born in the middle, I was born in Germany. 
my mother brought me here when I was one. My father was born in the army. I didn't know my father. I've never known my father. Um, Billy just served as a role model for us growing up. Um, really good guy. Unbeknownst to us, he had a heart condition, wasn't supposed to live to the past five years old. He lived to 27. And when he died, that's like when the neighborhood just drugs flooded the neighborhood. It was in the eighties, early eighties. And it just destroyed our neighborhood. The house that we we have um, where the cafe is was the house that he lived in. And when I came home, I noticed that it was abandoned and it was getting ready to be sold outside the neighborhood. So we just rallied like the whole community. It was it was awesome. Everybody came out and we preserved the, the legacy and, and story of Billy Taylor. And I mean, what better thing to do, Billy, did stuff for us when we was kids. That's why we created like youth program. Plus I was, I wish I had, I was 15 when I moved out. Um, so a lot of the stuff I created is, is created from my own experiences. It's what I wish I would have had when I was younger, or I wish I had when I was in prison. I mean, it's gotta be a great feeling just to not only do that for the community, but to get recognition on that level. I mean, that's huge in my opinion. Thank you. In uh, December 2017, John Legend and Unlock Futures invested into the campus uh, reentry program. How did that come about? Like, just, oh, I mean, that that to me is massive as well. <laughs> we applied for uh, for this uh, this funding. Somebody sent me an email, and we applied, and we were selected. I couldn't believe it actually. So, uh, John Legend. The thing about John Legend is, and this is it's it's not anything that's not public. His mother had a substance abuse problem and she was in and out of jail his whole life. So John is very passionate about this issue. He's been a huge advocate and a huge spokesperson for people who are um, caught up in the criminal justice system. I really had no idea about them. Yeah. Uh, in 2018, you guys were awarded a second chance act grant from the US Department of Justice to provide comprehensive services to assist high-risk individuals from being released from prison. Mm -hmm. um, similar thing. Did you get an email with that, or <laughs> it was uh, that was the partnership? We oh, we got okay. a second chance at grant um, in partnership with um, four other organizations, and together we collaborate to uh, provide holistic case management services um, for individuals who are coming out of prison. So, yeah. Okay, that's awesome. So. Just out of curiosity, was, is this like kind of beyond your wildest dreams? You know, if, if you look back to how you were in eighth grade when you dropped out or when you might, when you, when you got arrested and then you did all those years, could you have ever envisioned anything like this or like uh, you have any ambitions to do anything wasn't like my this? Goal. Yeah. 15 bucks an hour and a good woman. That was it. <laughs> but uh, I'll say this. It's one thing I've learned. Um, and I kind of learned this to my mother. I remember one day just, being so depressed and going home and, you know, just crawling up in my mother's bed one day. Uh, she let me in the house to stay, stay the night. And she was very upset with me. And I'm the baby of the family. My mother, like, uh, it was never James. No, that it's not him. But uh, she really laid into me that day. She was like, oh, don't you do that. She said, you get back up there, you dust yourself off and you try it over again. And if I've learned one thing, um, and I'm actually choked up about this, it's to fall forward. Cause you're gonna fall, I don't care. Like if you've been in this life for years on end, like nothing's linear. Uh, 
There are going to be falls along the way. There are going to be setbacks. Just don't fall backwards. Fall forward. Keep that momentum going. Get get right back up and get back out there in the game. And that's what's carried me to where I'm at right now. Um, and my good, I have, I did get a good wife, and we have a. I wanted to ask. Tell us about the good woman. I didn't want you to say there wasn't one. Tell us about oh, the good woman, James. God, she is right now. I'll tell you, she's some. <laughs> she's a lot of woman. <laughs> um, I went out, It was crazy because I was released and I went back home uh, from Baltimore and I came out early in the morning. I had called my son. He was staying next door with my sister. And I was like, James, I'm tired. I'll, I'll see you in the morning when I, um, when I get up, man, like before you go to school. So I come out the house in the morning and I'm waiting for him to come out. I'm staying at my mother's. My mother and my sister live next door to each other. And there's a car driving down the street. And it's this woman, Hakima, that my mother knows. So she's, she's younger, obviously, but she's from Morocco. She doesn't speak, uh, she's not really familiar with a lot of people in Rhode Island. So my mother was like the person always on the porch that talks to everybody. And Hakima lived up the street. And she saw me, I saw her, and then she just kept coming over the house. And then one day my mother said, you know, she's not coming over here for me, right? <laughs> and it was like, in 30 days, I was released, 30 days we were married. And then the next 30 days we were pregnant. So, yeah. <laughs> and, all in forward. <laughs> <laughs> um, if anything I've learned is to... I used to um, run from problems, you know? If anything, I've learned uh, stick and stay, you know? We- There is no running from problems. There's only running towards a new set of problems. Right, and (laughs) if I've learned anything, it's just, you know, you know, stick and stay, so. Yeah, and she's really like the best parole or probation officer I could have possibly asked for. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she's definitely on top of me so. yeah it's beautiful yeah, sometimes it takes that yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> our species is intense I'll speak for all of us no she's good she's good I I, I actually need that um, she keeps me uh, focused she keeps me on point she keeps me on track and she has pushed me in ways that I didn't even think were possible. So it's like you were saying about Steve Jobs, you can only connect those dots looking back or, you know, you set a goal for 15 bucks and a good woman. You didn't know you were going to spend two decades in and out of prison. And it was those two decades in and out of prison that actually became the impetus to inspire you to do this incredible work of course you wouldn't have been able to do this work without that experience. You wouldn't have thought of it. You wouldn't have wanted to, you wouldn't have had the heart and the drive and the understanding and the compassion to pull this off. And now here you are, you know, we just, we just can't. And that when, you know, we have to be grateful for all of our problems. Like we were just saying, you can't run from them. You can only run towards a new set or you can stick and stay and you can take a look at those problems and say, I want my problems, not a different set of problems. This mm-hmm. set of problems are the ones I'm going to find elegant solutions for, right? Sounds Absolutely. like that's exactly what you've done. 
It's an inspiration. Somebody's out there listening to this, just like you were out there seeing that, you know, your friends having success in ways that you've never imagined. Somebody's mm-hmm. listening to you right now saying, and a light bulb goes off saying, you know, Hey, I didn't know that was possible. Right. 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 Yeah. When we, when we live our purpose, when we take what's dealt to us and turn it into something special, it's that example that shows other people that something they never even imagined was possible. It's mm. really profound work. Yeah. Everything you go through in life prepares you for what you're to become. So it's true. It's true. Yeah. Faith. Faith. Faith is a big one, right? Faith, and you were talking a little while ago, too, about just that, knowing you're on the right path. You don't always know, but how do you know? You kind of develop an internal sense of, this feels right. This might feel uncomfortable, but it's uncomfortable in the way that growing pains are uncomfortable. If something is uncomfortable at the level of injury, maybe do something else, Mm -hmm. right? But, you know. It's mm. for real. Um, would you, I'd be curious at what point in your, in your time in prison, a light went off for you where you were really just like, no more. I mean, was it every time you went, you kind of went through that experience until it became solid enough for you to act on it? Or what was the big shift for you? Uh, there's a few ones. I'll, I'll give you two examples. Um, one was I used to go in lockup all the time. Lockups like 23 hours a day. You're in the cell feeding you through the slot. You get an hour for a shower. Um, and I remember I went to lockup. My mother, I had a visit scheduled. My mother was going to come see me and bring my, my first son. And, um, I could look out the window and see them like coming through the window and they're happy. He's happy. He's skipping up, up the, the, um, the entranceway. And I hear them calling my name because they call your name on the loudspeaker in case you're in the yard. Ontario visit. And <laughs> obviously I was in lockup. I couldn't get that visit. Um, but uh, I saw that and I looked back out the window. I saw her. He wasn't skipping anymore. She was carrying him and he was crying. She was carrying him out of the, um, out of the building. And I sat there for a few, few days and then I get a letter and again, my mother kind of leaned into me on that one. And I don't know, I just, when you're in lockup, it's, it's kind of, my sister always told me, she says, sometime, at some point, James, you're going to have to go in the closet and wrestle with your own demons. And whoever wins is coming out. And I think that's kind of what lockup served. Like, you're stripped of everything. You don't have a TV. You don't have your career. You don't have your material goods. You don't have anything. The only thing you're left with is yourself. Um, I remember reading that letter and I got up and I looked in the mirror that day and I was like, you know what, James, you did get a raw deal. Um, your father did leave. This did happen to you. That did happen to you. All of this happened to you. But I said, you know what? I was 19 at the time. I said, you're 19 now. I said, um, and anything that happens from, to me from there on out was the basis of my choices. Um, and that's when I decided to take more control of my life because prior to that it was everybody else's fault it was because my mother left my father or was it because society this way so i mean yeah this is the case but i mean if there's a hole in the sidewalk and i keep walking straight towards that hole and i know this is the situation i need to learn to find a way around that hole um go down a different street huh go down a different street 
go down and do exactly that poem. <laughs> yes. Yep. It's called, um, I think it's called Autobiography in Five Chapters. Yes. I found it in prison. That was a, yes. that's a powerful piece. It's a powerful piece. Yeah. So that was one. The other one was just sitting in my cell and I used to look out the window a lot and I'd, I'd look at the officer and I'd be like, why can't he have a good life and I can't? Um, why does he get to go home every day? And this is just my existence. And I don't know, something popped in my head and said, well, maybe because he's showing up for life and I, was, I wasn't. I kept trying to take the easy way out and it doesn't work that way. So I had to come home and be prepared to pay my dues. And that's what I tell everybody now that's coming home. You got to pay your dues out here. Just because you did your time doesn't mean you don't got to pay dues out here. You got to pay your dues out here. Um, Even so. the fact that the prison system is entirely unfair and unjust in a million different ways, we still have to pull ourselves up and yes. do better. And us doing better will, I think, has an incredible impact on yes. the system going forward. That's such mm. a powerful story about your son. I've mm. got similar ones about my little boy just... Yeah. One time he drove all the way home from visiting me in prison. My mom said he was crying. My mama wants to hold me in her house. I, my mama wants to hold me in her house while they're driving away from a prison visit. And it's yeah, just, They do the time with us. Oh, it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's brutal for the children. And um, any, any ways that we can help lift up folks that have been a part of the justice system, we lift up, I think, all of humanity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I know you got more quote. You know what? Let's go to an ad, actually, y'all. I think it's time for us to take a quick break, pay a, little, pay a couple bills, yeah. and we'll come right back. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Felony Inc. Podcast. If you're just joining us, our guest today is James Montero, founder and director of the Reentry Campus Program. Website is reentrycampusprogram.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, James, we were talking about a couple things uh, before we kind of left out there. Basically, um, one thing that I found was interesting. We just recently in- uh, interviewed Damien Lene, who's an art, uh, author from Australia. He wrote a book when he was in prison. Um, you talked a little bit about you were writing a book when you were there. Uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? I was just kind of wondering uh, what that was. <laughs> it's a it's a poetry book. I write poems. I do spoken word, um, and it was kind of like me planning through the insanity in my head. Um, in prison, you really can't. Uh, you have to kind of hide emotion. You know, yeah. uh, you have to kind of like always have a certain face on. And this was my way of releasing. And it's crazy because it's like, and I always keep going back to my mother. You know? It's my mother, when I was younger, she was like this 
she was a women's rights activist. And it's like, what do we want? Women's rights? What do we want now? My mother was in the mosque, fist up the whole nine. And my friends used to be like, ah, I saw your mother. Ah. Right? And I'd be like, yeah, leave me alone. And then she used to take us to these poetry re- readings. And I was like, why do I have to go? I don't want to go. I can't stand it. Right? And it just used to piss me off. Right? And the crazy thing about it is now it's like now I'm an activist and now I write poetry. <laughs> so all the things I couldn't stand about my mother is what I become. Kids <laughs> so are the worst. Huh? <laughs> Kids are the worst. The worst and the best. But right. man, yeah, they'll fight you tooth and nail and then turn out and that's how as a parent, you gotta really you gotta stick with it. You gotta know they're gonna rebel against it, but they're yeah. listening. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So did you finish yeah. the book? What's the... I did. It's called Words. Um, a Journey of a Thousand Miles begins with the first step. I self-published, so it would be... It's like we, we published a certain amount. I, I use them to uh, like kind of help people inside prison and motivate them to express themselves. I always think that um, everybody has a voice, something to contribute. Um, and what we're going through, other people are going through also. Uh, sometimes people just don't have the words for it. So I try to use it as a tool to help give other people words for things that they've gone through that they're unable to explain. That's, I think that's the highest um, aspiration of sharing uh, the art of writing is you can put your experience in this and somehow those words get gifted to someone. They consume them and they go inside their bodies and they turn out articulating things Mm. that the people didn't even know they had. Right. Mm, Sharing stories is so important. Mm. That's why we're doing this. I mean, it's old school oration where we share our stories and we're able to connect through them, you know, Mm -hmm. universal emotions. How can we get that book if we want it? Uh, you can reach out to me through the reentry campus uh, website and I'll make sure you get a copy. Do you perform? Do you perform your spoken word around Rhode Island? I have. I've performed in New York, uh, Maryland, Rhode Island. I have. Awesome. I'd love to check that out sometime. Um, so as far as the reentry campus program goes, uh, is it just people in Rhode Island that can apply for that or is it nationwide? Right now it's just Rhode Island. We have plans to scale up. We got a, a sizable planning grant from the Ascendium Foundation. Um, and if they like what they see at the end of the year, we provide them with a report of our model. Um, they're going to help us to scale. So. So as far as people listening that are currently incarcerated in uh, Rhode Island or their family that's listening, uh, what address would they have to send uh, their letter to to get a a Uh, ball rolling? The best address is uh, we have an office at our partner institution, which is Roger Williams University. So the best address would be Reentry Campus Program, um, 1 Empire Street, Providence, Rhode Island, 02903. Okay. What about folks that want to replicate what you're doing or take what you're doing into other states? Can they contact you? And Absolutely. Yeah. That's the goal, uh, just to get as many people access. Um, so whatever we can do to help. Now, I'm assuming you guys take, uh, obviously, donations. Do you do volunteer work, like accept volunteers that want to come be a part of this at all? Or? Love volunteers, actually. Yeah, absolutely. We all started as volunteers. So absolutely. Yeah. 
So if I wanted to go about being a volunteer and help you out, uh, would I just try to come to the office or is there a phone call? Yeah, you can come to the office or reach out to Abby. That's that's who you guys connected with first. Abby's pretty thorough and she keeps me on task. So just reach out to the to us on the website and Abby will it'll it'll get to Abby and we'll she'll make sure it gets to the gets to the right people. That's great. So where would you like to see personally, like reentry campus program came from nothing? And now you guys seem like you're going full steam ahead right now. Where would you like to see it in like 10 years from now? Oh, ideally. Um, I'd love to literally have campuses around the country. Nationwide. People can come home to. They'd have their housing upstairs. And instead of going to college, college professors and the programs come to them where they where they stay at. Um, And I'd like to see one of those in if not all, uh, a lot of the states. And are you going to be ready to pivot if we're able to abolish prisons by then? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we have, you know, we have more people with felony convictions in this country than voted for Obama in the Obama election. That's so if we actually brought all of this population together, we have the ability to determine who the president of the United States is. So I don't Which think- Which is why many of those people are not allowed to vote. <laughs> right. The powers that be prefer they don't. Right. So, <laughs> but yeah. we're getting there. Yeah. In Oregon, so, we're lucky, uh, Dick and I. Well, Dick's expunged. Dick's no yeah. longer a felon, but yes. I <laughs> am still a felon. Ooh. I have a federal conviction, so it's harder oh, to get yeah. rid of. But um, uh, I am allowed to vote in the state of Oregon. So good, good. that feels it, good. Yeah. Good. So I know in uh, other countries like Denmark, and I've read about a couple other countries, they're really kind of upfront about forcing, pushing uh, education inside prisons uh, to provide people opportunities. Why do you think in America we shy so far away against that? And it, uh, to me, it almost seems like we try to make it as difficult as possible for people to get education. Like it almost as if we want them to continue to come back and, and keep their recidivism rate as low as almost. It's almost like there's almost trying yeah, to keep people in prison like, in the United yeah, States. The weirdest thing. <laughs> Could be money. What do you, James, what do you think it would take to actually kind of turn, you're obviously making a great, you know, strides in the right direction, but for us to accomplish that and kind of take on more of that model, which I feel like things are kind of progressing more into that direction. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, but uh, just with, you know, what's happened in California and I I read that they're going to shut down a bunch of prisons there. So James, what do you think it would take for us to kind of start imparting more, you know, putting more of a, just, making education important and kind of a part of the curriculum of being in prison? Mm. Well, I mean, it it used to be until politics got involved. Um, And I think it served the purpose to keep people um, from not having access for for some, um, especially when it comes to voting and stuff. I think we need to come together. Uh, we have a lot of numbers in, with our population, but also we need to change the narrative and continue to educate people who are not uh, formally incarcerated also to get more involved. Um, I see this as this problem um, as having started with politics and the way that we're gonna actually address and deal with it um, has to be at the state house and Senate and, and 
through law. So. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like kind of a no-brainer to me. I mean, what's the point of, you know, pretending to want to rehabilitate people when you're not offering any tools or guidance or anything like that? And, you know, I saw you post something on your Facebook page that said the U.S. spends $80 billion a year on prisons, which is more than foreign aid, EPA, and NASA combined. Um, it's amazing that the power, <laughs> it's amazing what the power of the myth of law and order does for the voting population. The myth mm-hmm. that law and order will keep you safe. Therefore, if we put the bad people in the jail, that's worth mm-hmm. all the money in the world. Sort of like the, you know, all the money we float to the military industrial complex. The law and order, we're going to keep us safe from the bad people. It has some power to the human psychology that's just absolutely irrational because when we take a look at it and people start to realize that our prison system is really far more about classism racism and keeping slavery alive and keeping people profiting from bodies and behind bars it just makes zero sense at all so it is it's a complete facade one of my jobs in prison was literally to organize three ring binders for one of the officers that held all the information of the different programs. Mm. And I had to make sure that binder was beautifully organized because that was the proof when the folks from the corporate office came to see if the prison was running correctly, those binders would determine if those programs were working. Oh, Oh, look, they're doing the thing. The binder says so that yeah. inmate Meg organized appropriately whether or mm. not people were actually being helped from those programs, right? It was such right. a clown show. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, James, we recently interviewed uh, Five Mualim Ak, who's a huge advocate for prison reform and abolishing prison and, uh, you know, just kind of classifying solitary confinement as torture uh, within the UN and stuff like that. Uh, you actually had a very horrific uh, solitary confinement situation occur uh, in your life. Uh, could you kind of elaborate a little bit on that? Um, you mean that uh, there was quite a few experiences. <laughs> but there was a time where you almost died in solitary, correct? Okay. Uh, that's when um, I was uh, the state police. I had a run in with the state police and uh, I was beat pretty badly. Um, it took them a week just to get me to the point where though they can bring me to the prison. I was hospitalized. Um, I was beat with the, the officer's revolver. Um, my nose was shattered like like a glass window, like a car glass window. Um, and I choked on my blood, blood. And the next thing I woke, I woke up in the hospital, like flapping up and down on the on, on the gurney. Um, and when they brought me to the, the, um, intake, I was put in solitary confinement because my wounds were, were too great to be in population. Um, and when I was in, in solitary, uh, my throat had started to swell up from the tube that they had put down my throat to kind of drain the blood that was down in, in my stomach. And it was swelling up more and more, and I was losing my ability to breathe. Um, so I was banging on the door, and then a bunch of the other guys started banging on the doors. And eventually, we got a, a good officer on shift, um, and he came in, and he actually did his job. He looked at my throat, and they immediately rushed me out back out of the prison to the hospital. And then I ended up staying back in the hospital again 
for a few days. And you gotta be, you gotta be pretty serious for them to transport you out of prison to the hospital. Um, and I was immediately transferred. You have to be literally dying. Yeah. I, they had to slice open my throat and drain the, the cyst that had grown. But, um, I credit those guys in there if, if it were not for them, um, banging on the doors and that one officer, I, I credit him also, um, because he actually did his job. So, yeah. That's a crazy Thanks story. Thanks for sharing that story. Mm-hmm. Those stories are hard to hear and it's so important that they be heard. Yeah. Cause, yeah. and you know, it is, it's that one good officer cause there are 10 for many more for everyone that are yeah. not going to listen Right. They're not going to pay attention. They're not humanizing the, fo- the folks that are in their charge. And that's, mm-hmm. it's hard. It's hard to see what, what happens with people's health in prison. Glad you made yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very yeah. glad. Also grateful for those officers and those guys. Mm-hmm. So and one of the things you quoted earlier on the show, you said everything you go through in life prepares you for what you are to become. Mm-hmm. So essentially, right now, what you're going through with, you know, I, I feel like you're very successful at everything going on. Uh, what would you like to, what would you like to become like in the future? If you could improve or change in any way, what would that be? Um, I don't know. I never thought about it. I just, I don't know. Just going forward. Um, I don't know. At, at some point, I'd like to. I don't know if I'll ever be able to slow down. Like to, I, you, you, you get sped up so much sometimes. Um, I've started to learn how to ride, relax more and ride. But I like bike riding with my daughter. So we go bike riding on the trail. Uh, I guess, I don't know, I'm more stable on that side of my life. I think work is great, um, but there's a sacrifice that we pay when we're when people who are driven. Um, and... I don't know. I wish, I don't know. I love what I'm doing, so I can't stop. I don't, I don't think I would ever want to stop, but I also like to just do like things with my child and my daughter. How old is your daughter? She's nine. She'll be 10. It's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So James, um, right now, obviously, COVID has been severely impacting uh, everyone in prison in the United States. Yeah. Uh, one thing that it's had a huge impact on is people that actually have the ability to learn and study things in prison. Um, so now that's, you know, I'm assuming that's pretty much non-existent at this point in terms of how it used to be in terms of learning in classrooms and you know, with mm-hmm. you know, teachers in prison. Um, for people that are stuck in the situation right now, does it, first of all, does this create kind of more of a challenge for you trying to transition people out? And second of all, like, what do you, do you think that we need to kind of get more technology in prisons for people to learn from? Um, how could we go about doing that in your opinion? Um, COVID has exposed the need for a lot of institutions to kind of step up into the next century, um, especially with technology. Um, because here in Rhode Island, everything had shut down for a while. Um, we just started to get access recently. Uh, we do bi-weekly testing, um, COVID testing, but um, in regards to classes, everything was just being sent up through the mail. Um, our exams had been on hold because we've been unable to enter and proctor exams for people. Uh, we just recently got access to that. 
Uh, recently, here in Rhode Island, we we got tablets. The, the inmates got tablets. So we're looking at how we can come together uh, with Verizon, um, the Department of Corrections, and Ascendium came to the table also. And Brenda Dan Messia, she's on, she's on our board. She used to be the Assistant United States Secretary of Education um, for the for the government. Um, and we all met to speak about how that would look inside prison. So there needs to be something done. I'm not a tech expert, but there's ways that we can make closed systems or preloaded tablets with college courses and information on them. Uh, we just gotta be willing to, departments of corrections have to be willing to um, uh, go down that path, so. It's crazy, I don't know how things are in Rhode Island, but I mean, all the kids over here in Oregon, they're going to school from the tablets and yeah. online, you know, and if you're in prison and you're at school or classes, you're pretty much like out of luck at this point, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You would think they'd be able to transition, especially with all the money that brings in. I, I, I saw you post something and said uh, it's up to fifty nine thousand dollars a year for a male to be an inmate in Rhode Island, mm -hmm. and uh, and then a hundred thousand dollars for a female to be an inmate in Rhode At Island. At least, yeah, those are those are conservative numbers right there. Yeah, I wonder. I was wondering why you think it's double the amount for a female. I never, I never actually saw that before. Uh, females have different medical needs. Uh, a lot of that is based on medical. So, so the medical cost doubles the amount. Yeah, it's crazy. Medical and just uh, custody. It's just it's it's a different different level of um, custody. It's actually less females inside the prison, but they're the fastest growing uh, prison population right now. Is females. So. Yeah, I heard that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, James, I mean, I can't thank you enough for being part of the Felony Name Podcast, man. Uh, you know, the work that you're doing is incredible. Uh, once again, reentrycampusprogram.org is the website if you want to volunteer. Mm -hmm. If you want to donate or if you just want to check it out, you know, ideally we'd like to have these nationwide at some point. Um, and it's just, I'm, I'm really impressed with the work that you're doing and what you've been able to accomplish in a short amount of time. And I'm really looking forward to what you're going to accomplish in the future, even with these, um, you know, the coronavirus roadblocks and whatnot. Um, thank you so much for being a guest today, man. I'd love to have you back as a guest anytime, if that's cool with you. I feel Absolutely. like we can still go on with the, talk about a lot of stuff here. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you doing this. Um, you guys are controlling the narrative. And I, I think if you ask anything um, about what needs to happen is I think the narrative needs to change um, in the hearts and minds of all people. Um, and what you're doing is just extremely important because you have the venue and the access to be able to do that. So absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Such man. a pleasure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I, our number one goal is to curb the recidivism rate. And I think personally, the main way to do that is through education. So yeah. that's right where you come in and uh, just keep doing it, man. Keep doing the good work, man. Mm -hmm. And uh, for all you guys listening, remember to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific time on StartupRadioNetwork.com. And until yeah. then, see you next time. Peace. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.